But listen, we're, in, uh, we're continuing a very sensitive sermon series. Remember that this sermon series was in the works nine months ago. Um, remember last summer there was a lot of racial tension in our country, and there were a lot of people believing they had to respond immediately to that. And I'm of the belief that you need to really sit with some of that and really consider what's going on, look at a lot of facts, and sit with the Lord on how to respond. And what does justice look like? What does social justice look like? And what does that look like from a biblical perspective? I mean, I can turn on the news just like you can, but what does it look like from the point of view of the Scriptures? And so for nine months, I had been planning this series. It's just a four-week series. But it is a it is a uh, a serious topic, but it's also a quite a vulnerable topic. It's it's one that uh, is um, uh, it's a big it's a big topic in our day, and there's a lot of emotion uh, tied around this topic of justice. And so what we decided last week is I said what we're going to do is rather than take on social justice as a major topic and try to deal with it comprehensively, we're going to narrow in. We're going to just narrow in. We're going to make it smaller. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to take a journey through the Gospel of Luke with the goal of taking a look at specific scenes in the Gospel of Luke, watching where issues of justice emerge in specific situations of life. And from there, let's gather some lessons about what it looks like to do justice where we live. That's the goal. That's the goal. But my, it is a sensitive topic. And so hopefully I handled last week appropriately. I hope this week we handle it appropriately. And the next two weeks are going to be just as sensitive. But last week, you remember, as we zeroed in on this particular scene of a paralytic, he was a man paralyzed. He had to be brought to Jesus by a bunch of friends. They actually lowered him through a roof. This was a man who was on the margins of society, had no means to make money, probably quite poor uh, in the Roman world when you can't work. And he's there in front of Jesus. And you remember the first thing he says to the paralytic man is not get up and walk. I free you from your physical oppression. He says, your sins are forgiven. Which tells me that the, uh, the physical oppression, his ailment, wasn't the fundamental thing going on. It was sin. And from there and a lot of other scriptures, we came to this conclusion. Let's put this up. We came to this conclusion that the fundamental injustice in the world is our rebellion against God. And the fundamental justice in the world is the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's from the re- my rebellion to God, it's from there, inside my heart, that everything else is going to emerge. But it starts with me and my heart. And we must never forget it is Jesus on the cross paying the st- price for our sins where justice is primary. That's where we were last week. This week we take on another big issue because there we noted that critical theory is not the fundamental reality of the world. Is there oppression in the world? Absolutely. Is there racism? Absolutely. And we do not downplay that. But the world is not broken up at its foundation into the oppressed and the oppressors. It's broken up into the creator and the rebels. And praise God that he's taking care of that through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. That's where we. That's where we. Came, that's the conclusion we came to last week. Well, this week this is another big topic. Now, rather than tell you what our topic is, I want to introduce it. I'm telling you, this is a sensitive one, but you got to come with me all the way to the end. Come with me all the way to the end. All right. Here's an image I want to show you. 
Maybe you, maybe you know this image. Some, for some of you, this is illicit emotions inside of you. This is Colin Kaepernick in August of 2016. He took a knee when the national anthem was played. And just the day after this happened, he had an interview, an exclusive interview with NFL.com. And here's what he said. Here's what he said. I'm not going to stand up to show pride in a flag for a country that oppresses black people and people of color, Kaepernick told NFL media in an exclusive interview after the game. To me, this is bigger than football. And it would be selfish on my part to look the other way. There are bodies in the street and people getting paid leave and getting away with murder. That's what he said. It's a big comment. It's a big, sweeping comment. Now, let's go underneath the comment, though. What Kaepernick was protesting was pretty simple. Pretty simple. It's a human problem. It's, it's been around for a very long time, long before the United States showed up. Here's the thing Kaepernick was protesting. He was protesting the physical use of state power to oppress a specific group of people. That's what he was protesting. He was protesting when a police officer would kill an unarmed man of color. That's, that's really what he was, that, that was the example that, he's, that he was protesting. But just big picture, he's protesting the physical use of state power to oppress any group of people. That's not a United States problem, that's a human problem. The Roman Empire, that's what they did. They used physical force, use of state power to oppress people. If you didn't get in line with the Roman Empire, they put you on a cross. That's what they did. This is a human problem. But this assumption in our country is so widespread today that state power equals oppression that it now is stated as just fact. And now we make big, sweeping claims. And I want to show you some provocative headlines. Listen, the newspapers that wrote these headlines, they knew they were provocative because newspapers need clicks. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. If you're on the left or on the right, you need good headlines to get your clicks so that they see the ads. Here's two provocative headlines from June of last year from the New York Times. Pa pandemic within a pandemic. Coronavirus and police brutality royal black communities. And then the subheading, the current civil unrest is deeply connected to the racial disparities exposed by the coronavirus. Here's a quote from one organizer. I'm just as likely to die from a cop as I am from COVID. There's assumption under that that state power automatically equals oppression. Can it? Absolutely it can. But the assumption is, is that's just fact now. Here's another one, even more provocative from the Washington Post just a couple days before. Police killing black people is a pandemic, too. State, notice, state violence is a public health crisis. It's caused bad laws. Both provocative headlines. But there's an assumption under this. There's an assumption. There's an assumption that state power is oppressive. Now, there are a lot of facts on the ground that actually complicate both of these headlines. It's not nearly as simple as those headlines. Anytime you start making sweeping claims, anytime you descend into the details, it's going to be more complex. But again, we're dealing with state power and the abuse of state power. But it's become in our day an assumption, now stated as fact, sweeping claim of a few things. And that's really the goal for today, is I want to interrogate those, those assumptions. I don't want to have a debate about police activity. That's not the goal of the sermon, is to talk about the facts on the ground. I'm not a statistician. And I'm not trained to bring you all those facts. But what I can do is bring you Scripture. 
and interrogate an assumption that is widespread in our day. So just so we're clear, here's the assumption I want to interrogate right here. The assumption that state power is bad, state power equals injustice, state power is the problem, or like it's popularly said, policing is systematically oppressive. That's the thing we probably hear more often than not. So there it is. That's the thing I want to drill down on. If these assumptions are correct, if these assumptions are correct, then I would suspect that we will see Jesus doing a few things as we jump into the Gospel of Luke. Here's what I'd assume Jesus will be doing. Uh, I would see, we're going to see Jesus confronting the Roman Empire. He's going to call out the Roman officials. I'd expect that. That's what we see happening in our day. I'd expect to see Jesus doing it. And I'd expect to see him condemning its abuse, the empire's abuse, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, condemning, yes, the abuse of state power to systematically oppress people. That's what I'd be expecting. I expect that if, if state power automatically equals oppression and injustice, I expect we got to see Jesus showing up on the scene and any time he comes into contact with anyone holding state power, he's going to rip the Roman Empire and he's going to condemn the abusive system that is using state power to oppress people. That's just, that's just a logical assumption. Uh, 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 that's a, a logical flow from an assumption that state, state power equals injustice. So, for our short time together now, we're just going to walk through five scenes in the Gospel of Luke and see what happens. Because it just so happens that Jesus does come into contact with some very powerful people. And so does John the Baptist, interesting enough. The guy who was the herald, the forerunner for Jesus. So, we'll take a look. We start with probably a lesser-known passage. Luke 13. Luke 13, verse 1. Luke 13, verse 1. Now, there were some, some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Okay, so right there, you probably noticed the name Pilate. You guys noticed the name Pilate, right? This is the guy who finally gave the order to crucify Jesus. Uh, he's now immortalized in the creeds of the church. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He is a Roman governor in Palestine at the time. And at, in this moment, you have a group of people that come up to Jesus and say, Hey, haven't you heard about these Galileans? These Jews from Galilee, they were at the temple and Pilate had them murdered. Haven't you heard how the state, the Roman Empire... They used their authority to kill innocent people while they were worshiping. Wouldn't it be something if someone came in? Literally, if the U.S. military came in and wiped us out? Yeah, that's, this is the kind of thing we're talking about. So you would expect right here that Jesus has got the perfect, opportun perfect opportunity to rail the Roman Empire. If anything, it's time to take down Pontius Pilate. This is the Son of God. This is the man who came to bring justice to the world. If there's ever a moment, he was just told about... A Roman official abusing state power to kill people. Unarmed people. This is his moment. Alright, verse 2 and 3. Here's what he does. Jesus answered, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you will all perish. What in the world? Talk about a missed opportunity. He had a softball right there. And what did Jesus do? Jesus focuses on the individuals right in front of him. 
That's what he does. Because these people are trying to use the death of these Galileans as a way of saying they have a one-up on the, on, on the religious system. That, see, they are sinners. We are not so much. They died. We are not. We must be in a better position. And Jesus looks right at them. And I, rather than just read the verse again, can I just paraphrase? Here, here's what I think he's saying. Don't you point the finger at those people. You point the finger at yourself. You're a sinner also, and you will perish if you don't repent. So here's the takeaway on this passage, this scene. And we better not miss it. Here's the summary. Jesus points to the individuals involved, not the system. Was there a Roman system in play? Absolutely there was a Roman system in play. Jesus didn't see fit in this moment to point to it. He points to the individuals. He actually calls out the ones that brought the news. You come in your self-righteousness, you better pay attention to your own life. Oh. Well, this isn't like the only time this happens. Let's just push rewind and go back to the days before Jesus showed up, before he showed up on the public scene. Go back to John the Baptist. John the Baptist, we see the record of his ministry in Luke chapter 3. And in Luke 3, we'll pick up with verse 12 and 13. Some people come to be baptized by John the Baptist. Some people come to be baptized. All kinds of people came to be baptized. Luke chapter uh, 3, we'll pick up with verse 12. We'll go through verse 14. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. And then some soldiers asked him. Soldiers, by the way, soldiers. Asked him. And what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. All right. So if we take the assumptions of our day, the view that state power always equals injustice, well, if, if I was John the Baptist carrying that assumption, I'd be expecting, I'd be saying, I would be saying something different. You see, I think... We need to notice what John the Baptist does not say. This is very important because you have a tax collector. They are carrying the authority of the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire that could crucify you. Just at whim. We have soldiers. This is the equivalent of someone carrying a gun around, willing to shoot at any moment, and could for any reason. They carried the authority of the state. You know what John the Baptist doesn't say? I mean, we need to recognize this. He doesn't say this. He doesn't say, leave your jobs overthrow the oppressive system, and he doesn't say defund the empire. doesn't say any of that. Now, do you think that John the Baptist was gung-ho for the Roman Empire? Absolutely not. He wasn't a fan of the empire. But what John does is he did what Jesus does. He was dealing with the people right in front of him. Because you and I are not the sum of a system. We are individuals, first and foremost. And then we create systems. But he was dealing with tax collectors with names in front of him, soldiers with names and histories in front of him. And so here's what he does say. I, this is, again, my paraphrase. Do your job justly. Don't steal. Don't lie. Which, by the way, young people still in the room, that's just a good policy for getting and keeping a job. Don't steal. Don't lie. And do your job justly. Which, may I add, means showing up on time. That's just a baseline. Just show up on time. Okay. Be amazed how, how long you can keep a job. You just show up on time. Um, okay. That's what he says. And so here's John the Baptist. says the same thing Jesus says. He focuses in on the individuals, not the system. 
doesn't mean the system wasn't there. It's because God is always pointing to the heart when He's got a person in front of Him. That's what's happening. Now, did John the Baptist deal with people in power? Absolutely. You, do you remember there was a king named Herod when Jesus was born? Do you remember this? Yes. And he did not like the idea of another king coming on the scene. And so he had every baby, two years old and under, killed around the region of Bethlehem. Well, that king died shortly after Jesus was born. And his, he had multiple sons, and so his kingdom was broken up among his sons. And one of them was named Herod. And he had another and another. Well, one of those brothers had a wife. And the one, the son named Herod, he liked that other brother's wife. And they started to have an affair. And when that wasn't good enough, they, he just decided to take his wife. And John the Baptist saw that happening. And here's what happened. Luke 3. Luke 3. So, oh, John the Baptist speaks truth to power. Check this out. Verse 19 this is still Luke 3. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. The one thing Luke records, the one specific thing, we see it in the other Gospels, that, that uh, we, we know that John called out to this man who had, who had not only established uh, different pieces of injustice in the region, but was sustaining that injustice, was working with the Roman Empire. The one thing he mentions about Herod, the Tetrarch, is that he was sleeping. He had married his brother's wife. He calls out his immorality. Could he have called out the system? Absolutely could have called out the system. But at heart was his individual behavior. And you know what happens when a, a ruler goes bad? You get a really bad system. But you don't solve the problem by fixing the system. You solve it by fixing the heart. And from there you roll out with a just system. But John the Baptist calls out his immorality. Didn't call out the system. Didn't call out the laws. Called out the man. Very important for us to see. Alright. So now let's push fast forward. I want to go to uh, uh, a more famous story. No one, I don't, I don't need anybody singing the song. Just let's read the passage. I know he's a wee little man. I get it. Okay? Don't do that. All right. Luke 19, Luke 19, verse 1. We have this story recorded. Jesus entered Jericho, and he was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. Now, he was a chief tax collector. Chief tax collector. This is a man of great power. And obviously, next few words, he was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and he welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be with the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him today, salvation has come to this house. Because this man, too, is the son of Abraham. This is a Greek. This is a non-Jew. This is a man who is intimately tied into the Roman system. Getting taxes. And if you didn't pay taxes, big trouble for you. Big trouble for you. And this is the man that was in control of all of it. Actually, not only was he in control of you individually, he was in control of other tax collectors. This is the chief tax collector. And you notice what Jesus doesn't do? He didn't talk anything about the system. 
doesn't talk anything about the oppressive system, the nature of the Roman Empire. He doesn't call any out state powers being oppressive. He calls out Zacchaeus. He goes to Zacchaeus' house, and then Zacchaeus, what does he do? He doesn't repent from being part of an oppressive system. He doesn't say, get out. Get out of the abusive, systematic use of state power. No, what happens is Zacchaeus personally repents. You know what that tells me? It tells me the same thing I was finding last week that we discovered. It's this, right here. I'll take it in a summary. Uh, so, this is a really great slide that I forgot about. So, let me reverse the order. Carol, can you go to the next one and then we'll go back to this one? Zacchaeus' fundamental problem was not his partnership in a state-sanctioned oppressive system. It was that he was a thief. It was a thief. You know what happens when a thief gets in power? He starts to hurt other people. And it becomes quite oppressive. So here's the slide before. Um, we might have expected Jesus to rail against that oppressive system of tax extortion that Zacchaeus and his associates were, had instituted in the region. Or he might have told him to leave his job and stop associating with an abusive system of state power. That's not what he does. And Zacchaeus says, I'm going to pay back. He doesn't say everybody's got to pay back. He says, I'm going to pay back. What I stole, I'm paying back. And I'm paying back four times. Did you notice that? Jesus didn't tell him to even do that. Nor did we, do we have any sense that Zacchaeus forced other people to pay back what they had stole. He's the one that had come to salvation. And at that point, justice had to be done. And he paid back what he stole. He stole. That's what justice was looking like for Zacchaeus. But it started with him. It's very important to see that. And you know what? We have no, we have no um, indication that Zacchaeus stopped being a tax collector. Interesting enough, I'll just add this. When Jesus called Levi the tax collector, what did Jesus do? He had a meal with a bunch of Matthew's tax collector friends. And who got upset with that? The religious leaders. The religious leaders. All right. All right, one more. One more scene as we move along. We're moving quick. We're going to go backwards. We're going to go to Luke chapter 7. Probably the clearest example of state authority right here. Of at least someone holding it. Luke chapter 7, we pick up with verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all of this to the people who were listening, He entered Capernaum. And there's, there, there a centurion servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. And the centurion heard of Jesus. He sent some elders of the Jews asking, uh, to, ask, uh, to him, asking to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I do not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But you say the word and my servant will be healed. For my, I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. Turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. And then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant was well. This is a Roman official. A Roman official who has authority. And it's the clearest statement here in the Gospel of Luke that this man actually held authority. So much so that he acknowledged his own authority to Jesus. I am a man of authority. 
And it was not, it wasn't like, I'm just, I'm really cool and a lot of people like me and I have a lot of followers on social media. It was, I have the power of the state. I carry the name of the Roman Empire. That system that has, that has oppressed probably hundreds of thousands of people at that point. And Jesus looks at him and says, you are the example of faith. I found no one like you even in all the nation of Israel. And you're not even a Jew. Can you imagine what that was like for this, this group of Jews standing there who were under the oppression of the Roman Empire? Jesus just put up as an example a Roman official as a standard of faith. That's just crazy. But it's because Jesus looked right there at the individual. So take a, just let's summarize it. Put this, let's put this one up. This is the summary, so we don't miss it. Next slide here. Jesus looks at the individual. He sees his faith. He didn't see the system he represents. You think Jesus had a problem with the Roman Empire? Absolutely he did. And God in his sovereignty eventually took down the Roman Empire. And don't worry, God will take down every oppressive power. He will, in the end. The new creation will not have any oppression. But in this moment, he saw the individual. So let's just summarize everything we did. That was a fast journey through five scenes. Here's the summary. The human heart is primary. The heart is what goes wrong. And it leads to injustice. From these, injustice can become systematic in laws and policies. Oh, it can. But the foundation of injustice is in the individual heart. Has America ever had unjust laws? Oh, yes, it has. Have they been racial, racially based? Oh, yes. Were they a problem? Yes. Did God have a problem with them? Yes. Did America uh, take Indian land over, uh, uh, over many years in the 19th century? Oh, yes. Was that a problem? Oh, yes. Has God been able to handle that? And will He handle it? Oh, yes, He will. But may we never forget God is always interested in the heart. God will not save America. He will save Terry Wheeler, George Lewis, Jenny. That's who He's going to save. And you'll just happen to be part of a particular nation. So there will be all kinds of nations in the new creation. All kinds of languages. But He doesn't save the U.S. Constitution. He's not going to save the French Revolution. He's not saving Libya. He'll save people in Libya or in France. You get the point. Human heart. So what do you do with all this? Like, what, what kind of application can we make out of this issue with state power? I've got three things, and we'll move through them quickly. Here it is. First one, we need to refuse to reduce individuals to group identity. It's very important. It goes both ways on this. Right, left, black, white. Red, brown, it doesn't matter. We do not reduce people to their group identity. You are a name with a history. And so shame on anyone on the left that calls out systematic racism and lumps us together. You know, I said last week that I'm the worst thing in the world because not only am I a man, I'm a white man. And if you add to it, I'm middle class. Like, I am the problem. That is to reduce my God my, my soul who bears the image of God. I am not the sum of my group identity. I am a human being creating the image of God. And so that's what we always have to remember. Now, this is going to go the other way, too. Let's put up a slide. I just want to make sure we're very clear on this. Some on the right will carry this assumption up here at the top. I want to be very clear. Poor African Americans are not criminals. And anyone that thinks that, shame on you. That is wrong. But are there some bad poor African Americans? Yes. Yes, there are. Is every white, rich, white guy bad? 
No, but there sure are some bad ones. And be clear on this one. Police officers are not systemically racist oppressors. They're not. But are there some bad ones? Absolutely. There are. Do some of them sometimes hurt people of color because they are racist? Absolutely they do. Do they need to be dealt with? Absolutely they do. They need to be removed from power and prosecuted. Are there people in minority communities and poor white people that commit crimes and need to be put in jail? Absolutely there are. Do you see what the point here? We should never reduce a, a human being who bears the image of God to a group identity. Let's never do that. All right, second application. We're going to go a little wider on this one. As Americans, the right to vote is a form of state power. Do you ever think of that? By the way, you, you have some power as an American. You can vote. So we must use our power to remove unjust laws and policies. You've got to be part of removing unjust laws. Do you know that there are still laws that need to be taken off the books? Yes. So I know that as the racial tension was emerging in our country last summer, immediately I think, yes, yes, we need to, we need to deal with state power. And then you know what came to me? Yes, yes, like, are there police officers, like, is the police force in Roanoke Rapids, is it racist? And I thought, yeah, what laws, what policies are in place that are oppressing minority communities or poor white communities? And, I thought, and you know what, what happened was I just had to stop and go, I don't even know what those are. I don't even know what the policies are. Like, I'm ready to, like, burn down a bridge, and I don't even, like, what? I don't even know what the policies are. Does Roanoke Rapids, the city of Roanoke Rapids, have racist laws? I don't even know enough to tell you yes or no. I've never been that engaged. So it would be worth my time and worth everyone's time to spend more time being engaged, engaged monthly at the city, uh, the city council meetings than it would to post stuff about social justice on social media. You know how much good you're doing by posting on social media? Very little. And you're really talking to the people that follow you. And Facebook has figured out an algorithm that you're really only being seen by a select group of people. You ever gone over 200 likes? Probably not. Probably sit somewhere around 30 to 40, maybe. Facebook likes it that way. The point is that we have some power. And if there are places in our city that we need to deal with, then let's use our civic power, state power, to do something about it. Let's vote. Are they, do they exist in our county? Maybe they do. Then let's become engaged enough to actually know what's happening in our county. You know the last. You know the last policy or law passed in our county. I don't. Well, I would do. It would do well to actually know what's going on. Most people that are pontificating and yelling about social justice actually don't know what's going on in our police departments and in our in our county government. I am part of a. I am part of a community uh, advisory group. I. I, the last one I was at, I was sitting next to the president of Halifax County NAACP, David Harvey. He and I, I think, are becoming friends. And I, I was the only uh, representative from our community, white person from our community in that group, a bunch of other African-Americans, influential leaders. And there were a couple other city council members, a few, and two of them were white. I'm just giving the racial makeup here. And one of the ladies, African-American ladies, actively engaged in social justice, even in our community, she asked the question at one point, um, we need more information. I don't even know what all the policies are for the police department. 
So before we start making big claims about what's happening in our city or what's happening in a particular department, let's, let's become active. And maybe we'd start just by understanding what's going on in our city council meetings. And I know Wayne. If I know Wayne, I know this about Wayne. He would tell you there aren't many people from the city showing up at the city council meetings. There really are just a few people making big decisions in our city. Now listen, I have kids. I probably won't show up at one. I'm trying to do my, my good duty, my, my good deeds somewhere else. But So don't judge me if I don't show up at the city council meeting. But point is, the big picture is, let's use our power where we can use our power. By the way, social media is not power. Not the kind of power that's going to change policies and laws. Your vote will do more than that. Reading a statement at city council will do more than that. Community organization will do more than that. Let's just be really careful. Let's use our power. You have power. All right. Let's go real personal now. So that's all like the big stuff. Here's where it gets down into your home. Look at your whole life and evaluate how you can treat the people around you more justly. I, it feel, let me say it this way. It feels really good to yell about injustice somewhere out there. But what happens when I yell at my kids because I'm in a tirade? Not really just. Now, I'm not saying they don't ever need to be disciplined. Listen, sometimes you got to be real stern. You get that. I won't, we'll just leave it there. you got to be stern. But you know what I mean. What about when you have rage in your house? Or what happens when you gossip about somebody at work? What happens when you talk bad about your neighbor and you never give them the benefit of the doubt? What happens when you hide things from your spouse? What happens when you cheat someone? out of something they deserve or what is theirs. You get the point. I could just go on with a long list of sins. We love calling out other people for their unjust behavior. If we know anything from what Jesus is teaching us here, it is, but what about you? How are you loving people where you are? Your neighbors, your co-workers, your family. So before we start throwing stones at everybody else, which sometimes we've got to throw stones, be very careful that you're not throwing stones at everyone else and never looking at yourself. All right. Next step. Next step. A large part of our next step will actually be a prayer. Here's the next step. I think we need to get this on the ground for us. We need to pray for individuals in authority. Pray for individuals in authority. I mean, literally, people we've elected. Let's pray for them. It's a lot easier to call down judgment on a police department. But what happens when you pray for Bobby Martin, chief of police? The police are racist. Come and say that to Bobby Martin in front of his face. That's a very different thing to do. Because Bobby Martin's a person who follows Jesus. And he's doing what he can to try to do good. And if he needs some instruction or maybe some correction, then let's talk to Bobby Martin, who has some authority. And then let's pray for ourselves. If you're a parent, you have authority. If you are a son or daughter, you've got some authority in a relationship of love. If you're an employer, you definitely have authority. You get the point. All of us are holding authority. Let's use it justly. And what I want to do is I want to pray for those authorities. So rather than calling down judgment or, or thinking that they're just automatically right, let's pray for them. And here's the way I want to frame the prayer. It comes from 2 Kings 8.15. Here it is. This is this what we read in 2 Samuel 8.15. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. That's my prayer. 
I want to pray for our elected officials, and I'm going to add in there the Roanoke Rapids Graded School District Board of Trustees, okay? And I want to pray for them. And I want to pray that they will do what is just and right for everyone under their care. That's where I want to land this plane. State power is not bad. Bad people can use state power to do bad things. But in the way of Jesus, we always look at the individual and never forget to look at ourselves and how we treat people. So, when you come up for communion today, grab a list. We're just going to pray for these and we'll put on the slide. We're going to pray over these and we'll be done. I'm just going to really read the name. Okay? So, if you would, um, I guess you can look at the screen. I'm going to look at the screen. So, yeah, we'll just look at the screen. But this is our closing prayer. That the Lord would help these men and women to, to use their state authority justly to do good for all of us. So, let's pray for them. We pray... For the Roanoke Rapids Police Department, we pray for Bobby Martin, our Chief of Police. We pray for Jamie Hardy, who's the Captain of Criminal Investigations. We pray for Chuck Burnett, Captain of Patrol Division. And we pray for Mike Mosley, the Administrative Lieutenant. Next slide. Let's pray for our Roanoke Rapids Greatest School District Board of Trustees. For Jay Carlisle, Valencia Davis, Tammy Colston, Kathy Keeter, Ed Liverman, Dr. Mike Williams, Henry Ford, Mike Salnick, and Joey Briggs. Let's pray for Roanoke Rapids elected officials. Emery Dowdy, Ernest Bobbitt, Suetta Scarborough, Sandra Bryant, Wayne Smith, and Carl Farabee. And then we pray for our Halifax County Board of Commissioners. Vernon Bryant, Reese Manning, Carolyn Johnson, Marcellus Smith, Linda Brewer, and Patrick Falls. Lord, would you help all of these men and women to use their state-sanctioned power to do justice. And then also remind us that that prayer goes for us, where we live, in our homes and workplaces. And in the name of Jesus, we say, Amen.